Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. This is the podcast where we discuss career counselling, career guidance, mental health awareness and mental health training in the workplace. With your hosts, Patrick, Sally, Tina and Amy. Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. My name's Tina Winchester and today I'm joined by Simon Blake, OBE, who is the Chief Executive of Mental Health First Aid England. And prior to becoming the Chief Executive of MHFA, Simon was the Chief Executive of the National Union of Students um, and Brooke, the Young People's Sexual Health Charity. Simon was awarded an OBE for services to the voluntary sector and young people, and I'm delighted to be having a conversation with him today, despite the fact that for Simon it's half past six in the morning. So welcome, Simon. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Let's get started with having a look at how you became um, CEO of Mental Health First Aid. Was it Mental Health First Aid something that you would uh, be interested in, um, in terms of the, the position, or did you kind of you know, stumble across it and think, oh, this looks like something that might be good for me? Well, I knew about Mental Health First Aid, and when I was at the National Union of Students, we had had training. I hadn't personally, but lots of people had talked about how brilliant it was. So when the headhunters um, contacted me about it, I was like, oh, this looks like an interesting uh, job, an interesting concept. And I guess you know, all of my working life really has been about social justice. It's been about equalities. It's been about tackling stigma. It's been about you know, trying to make sure that we are a better place to live. And so Mental Health First Aid England really tapped into that, that sense of purpose I guess and so yeah was really lucky and, and thrilled when I was appointed chief executive about seven months ago. Fantastic but Poppy Jarman's shoes are big shoes to fill. Absolutely I mean Poppy is just a wonderful woman who did you know fantastically um, setting up the organisation leading it for the first decade and one you know luckily for me of course poppy is is close by our side she's still an ambassador so she's always there for help and and advice um when i need it but yes um very big shoes very big shoes indeed but you're doing a great job because we do follow mental health first aid england closely from here at the career development center your marketing is fantastic the content that you put out on social media that consistent content is is just second to none so we do follow you very closely from here Oh, thank you. That's really nice feedback. And I'll make sure the team team get it. They work you know, really hard and everyone's so passionate about it. And I think that's what's so wonderful to be part of this both national community, but also the global community, because, of course, Mental Health First Aid started in Australia 20 years ago. And, uh, you yeah, but the passion and the drive to try and um, and affect change, I think, is just, you know, makes people want to do brilliant work every day. And, and certainly, um, you yeah, know, my team you know across all all of the organization you know just do a fab job yeah i love it that's great so your work um prior to to mental health first aid um with the the national union of students you must have come into contact with a lot of of young people experiencing problems with their mental health yeah i mean so for the last tw- certainly at nus you know we know that student mental health is a really really big issue and um, our elected officers, our welfare officers had mental health as a priority. Um, we were working with Universities UK on their work around mental health at that point um, in time. And 
So we we knew firsthand at NUS how important um, uh, mental health was, but also the 10 years prior to that, I was at Brooke, which is the Young People's Sexual Health Charity. But of course, sexual health and mental health is about who we are and what we do and, and what we think about ourselves that drives our sexual choices. And so we also you know, um, had a really strong drive around well-being um, at Brooke. In fact, we did some very specific work around mental health and well-being as both part of our education programs, but also part of our, uh, our clinical services. Um, and then right back at the start, really, around um, working in the community with young men, uh, working around the National Healthy Schools program, lots and lots of work around emotional well-being, around mental health, about um, trying to enable people to be the best version of themselves that they could be. So this is a thread, really, that should have run right the way through. And of course, I started my very first work was around HIV, yeah, the issues around stigma. Yeah, absolutely the same as, uh, as, as mental health and also people living with HIV 20 years ago. Of course, it was a very different epidemic and a very different reality of which mental health was yeah, an absolutely fundamental part. So whilst I've never really had a single focus role around mental health, it's been there all the way through everything I've done. So, you know, it, which is why it's such a fantastic job and, and so excited to be uh, able to, I guess, bring that 25 years worth of work into uh, this organisation feels like a real privilege. Oh, absolutely, for sure. The Where's Your Head At campaign, I'm really interested to talk to you about. And for our listeners that, that aren't aware of the Where's Your Head At campaign, even though we have promoted it um, through the Career Development Centre when uh, it was going to Parliament. Can you give us an overview of the Where's Your Head At campaign? So the, the Where's Your Head At campaign was launched um, about a year ago uh, and it started with uh, a, a collaboration between uh, Bauer Media, uh, Natasha Devon, who's a, an activist and former government advisor on mental health and Mental Health First Aid England, who came together to say, we need to get equality, equity between mental health and physical health first aid. And so it was a campaign, which was an online campaign, which got over 200,000 people supporting the principle that we have to make sure that people's mental health is attended to and that therefore mental health first aid is a part of the workplace and it's embedded in legislation. Uh, following on from that, we uh, really tried to get uh, support from some of the major business leaders who wrote, a, over 50 business leaders wrote a letter, an open letter to the Prime Minister uh, saying that you know, this was something that they believed was important, that you know, legislation wasn't the panacea, but it was an important step to symbolise how important people um, believed mental health was and that they would take action to address it. And that that petition of over 200,000 uh, people was taken to number 10, uh, where the Prime Minister lives, um, in November last year uh, by Bauer, Natasha Devon and Mental Health First Aid England. As a result of that, two key things happened. The first was that the Health and Safety Executive, which is responsible for uh, ensuring that businesses take their health and safety responsibilities seriously, so it's a regulator, updated their guidance, which for the first time was really explicit about mental health and the importance of mental health and employers taking um, due account for mental health. The second thing that happened was in January this year, uh, there was a parliamentary debate, a backbench debate uh, on, on the floor of Westminster Palace. And 
there was a widespread support. And at the end of that, the speaker uh, said that the eyes have it, which basically means that the people who were in the room debating it uh, supported the principle that mental health first aid um, should be in legislation. Now, government uh, disagreed, uh, and so that hasn't made its, uh, its way through um, at this stage. But what we know from the first year of the campaign is that the support is there and the support is growing. And so for us, it's really about saying that the health and safety executive have updated the guidance. That's really, really important. Um, and then secondly, this is a case of um, when, not if. So it will happen at some point. But thirdly, that really, really importantly, there's so much more that we can do at the same time of pushing for legislation because what we really need is, is widespread cultural change, which will really ensure that uh, it's not because they're complying with legislation that businesses will take action, but because they have this unshakable belief that this is really, really important and that mental health deserves parity with physical health. And so in a couple of weeks' time, which will be a year since we launched the first phase of the campaign, there will be um, a manifesto uh, which uh, is being launched again by Bauer um, with Natasha Devon and um, Mental Health First Aid um, England. And that workplace manifesto is really about asking business leaders to uh, publicly commit to the fact that they know that mental health is really, um, really important. And, and, and that is really asking um, them to recognise the link between their leadership, their management, their systems, their policies, and a diverse and inclusive workplace that takes account of, of mental health. And, and really asking people, the other bit which has happened, which is so important in workplaces, is the Prime Minister asked um, uh, some of our leaders around mental health to do a review um, called Thriving at Work. And that Thriving at Work uh, report outlines six core standards. And so the manifesto is saying, you know, we need leaders to stand up and, and to say that they uh, recognise the impact. Um, we want it to be treated equally, mental health and physical health to be treated equally in the workplace, because that will create diverse, inclusive workforces. And that those six standards which drive Thriving at Work should be at the heart of the way that people think about mental health in the workplace. Fantastic. It's just fantastic. How, you know, the, the first step to getting this off the ground um, involving Bauer Media, was there already a relationship? Were they already champion, championing the cause of mental health in workplaces or, or were they approached? Um, I think it was, a, it was a combination that there was a growing awareness around um, mental health and that um, the relationship between Natasha Devon and Bauer um, and then Natasha's relationship with Mental Health First Aid brought the, the three organisations together um, to, you know, we have, we have a, a history um, in, in the UK of, of um, you know, businesses, whether that's a, a, a newspaper or an integrated uh, you know, media company, um, taking, taking issues which they think is important, which they either see through their workplace or they know their listeners and their, uh, their customers feel is important. And, and using their power to amplify that message. And that's what this combination of, of Bauer, um, Natasha, you know, who's, a, who's a leader uh, in the field, and then Mental Health First Aid with 20 years of evidence and understanding and you know, that global work that came from Australia, then across the country, uh, across the world, and both within England, 
you know, that, that's a powerful combination. And it's when those combinations come together that we really see um, hearts and minds changing. Because, you know, uh, what Mental Health First Aid England will say as a, as a social enterprise whose mission is to you know, improve uh, the mental health of the nation, you know, a, a leading activist and a business leader, we all have separate audiences and people who, who believe us and support us. And so bringing those three things together with the unique skill sets and, and different, different audiences is, is a great way to make change. I think it's, you know, it's, it works time and time again. And, and we must look to more of those models you know, here, Australia, around the world. Yeah, I agree with that. I I really do. I watched um, some of the recording of the um, the debate in Parliament in January, and I was really touched by there was a number of of MPs there that talked about their own experience of mental health problems or experiences that their family members had had, and it was really it was. I mean, I don't recall ever. I mean, I don't know everything, and I'm, you know, I'm not there anymore. I haven't been in this, in in England for a long time, but I don't ever recall that kind of vulnerability being displayed in that kind of way. Would that be fair? I think that's a really fair observation, and I think it is one of the things that's driving change in this country and around the world is storytelling. People saying this isn't something which happens over there. It's not something that you observe on the street or uh, you know, in, um, uh, in, in, in places outside. These are things that happen to me. These are things that happen to my family. And that's happened in business. That's happening, you know, as you say, within, uh, the, um, within our political system. It's happening within schools. And so you know, once people say, yeah, this has happened to me, once people say this has happened in my family or you know, it just means that it brings it to life and it makes it personal. And of course, that that making it personal is what makes it compelling for others. But it also makes us want to do to to bring about change because um, none of us, you know, from a very very early age, we have a strong sense of what it feels like to be fair and when something's unfair. Um, and and that's what justice is about, isn't it? And so hearing people's stories, feeling those stories, being affected by them you know, brings commitment and, and, and I guess what's, what I think is, is really positive about uh, this is that it's also um, across genders, across sexualities, across ethnicities, across identities, we're hearing people saying, um, it happened to me, it happened to my partner, it happened to my brother and, and that means that it's, you know, it's not something which is just for one group. It's across class. It's across identities. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. So Bauer Media was one of the, the main drivers. I know that Thames Water as well got on board. Now, they've got a lot of employees, haven't they, that they've trained in mental health first aid? Yeah, Thames Water is, is an impressive uh, case study. And there are lots of examples of really yeah, of organisations taking uh, this and, and, and really making a difference. But Thames Water trained 350 first aiders. And, uh, yeah, it's a big, big company, um, a utilities company. But what they found is that they have a ratio of five more mental health first aid interventions than physical first aid in- interventions. And that what they're saying is that it's just driving a change in organisational culture. It's driving the way that people understand the organisation cares about them and it's driving a change in the way that the care they give the, to the peers 
yeah, as a res- as a result of that. And and that's a really you know uh, brilliant uh, uh, story because you know when people can see that that real change that that can happen within an organisation, um, and it drives success because of course you know this is this is about human cost, mm-hmm. but it's also about financial cost. And businesses you know want to ensure that they're you know, it's the right thing to do to look after their employees, but it's also the right thing to do for the bottom line. Absolutely. Um, and so we need to uh, to know and understand these where it's making a difference. And of course, what Thames Water are really clear is that this is one part of a whole organisation approach. This is about ensuring that you've got the right systems, the right policies, the right procedures, and the right culture. Um, and that's when mental health first aid. Yeah, will be at its best when when everybody recognises it's 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 part of the ethos of the organisation and part of enabling them to develop deliver to do deliver well um, on what uh, what they want, which is healthy employees doing um, thriving at work. So, mentally well workplaces, it, it's a, an arm of the Career Development Centre over here. So, we're we're doing some work um, with a number of businesses around mentally well workplaces, and mental health first aid is a is a component of that. Um, and I get to meet a lot of um, business owners, HR directors, um, chief execs, that kind of thing, and to talk about how to um, you know get started in terms of creating and and sustaining mentally well workplaces. And I get asked a lot the same question, which I respond to, but I've thought, seeing as I've got you here, I'm going to pick your brains. So a question I get asked a lot, which is, a fa- I, I understand the question and why they ask it, but people say to me, but we're a bit concerned that we might open a can of worms here. You know, we're concerned that our EAP use will go up significantly and that's going to cost us money. We're concerned that their people will be, there's an expression in Australia called rotting the system, you know, so pulling the wool over their eyes and saying I'm stressed or my mental health's not good and, and going off on stress leave and, um, you know, and taking the mickey. And how would you respond when uh, an, an organisation says that we, we, we care for our staff's mental health, we don't really want to open this can of worms because we think that people are going to walk all over us? It's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, there, is, there could be exactly the same argument about physical health, but for some reason it feels okay to say this about mental health. I mean, the short answer, in, in my view, is people are generally good. And, you know, people, uh, if they feel cared for and feel valued and feel supported, you engender trust and you enjoy gender loyalty. And when people trust and feel loyal to a system, they do their best for a system and for an organisation. They don't, uh, what do you call it, rotting the system. Rotting the system. Rotting the system. It doesn't sound quite the same in an English uh, uh, <laughs> accent, uh, I'm sure, does it? But uh, the, um, uh, you know, I, I, so I just think that that principle of, yeah, remember that people are inherently good, mm-hmm. and that we uh, that we should trust at them. Um, and I guess the second is um, not talking about something never made it go away. The, the the worms may be in the can, but the can is the organisation, and yeah, the the organisation therefore needs to talk about uh, the issues and and address them, and to understand what the employees think would make a difference, and that will again, help them to solve any issues that there are and to make employees happier and healthier, which we know makes them more productive and which we know uh, drives uh, success for individuals and 
and businesses. Yes, EAP programs may go up, uh, but I guess yeah, the, the, the people using the EAP um, may go up. But actually the alternative costs are there in all sorts of other ways, whether that's in absenteeism or presenteeism or leaveism, you know, the idea that people going on leave but don't feel able uh, to to um, properly take their leave, so still attached to the end of their their uh, phones, um, and and so for me this is about bringing something out into the open, uh, understanding what the issues are, and then dealing them with them in ways which are fair, um, which are appropriate, which may include difficult conversations, uh, but that is all part of the process, and the idea of suppressing that for fear of opening a can of worms just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make human sense and it doesn't make business sense. Yeah, absolutely right. Good. See, I, that's the kind of response that I've been kind of talking to people about and saying, well, you know, to start with, we're not expecting you to create a therapeutic space. This is still a workplace. And if somebody was um, struggling with their physical health, you wouldn't be making assumptions about a diagnosis on the spot and then thinking, oh, they're going to go off with a bad back forever. And it doesn't happen all the time. You know, now and again, people will go off with a bad back forever, but it is very, very rare. And actually the concern around those very small numbers of people that might rot the system, that our concern is misplaced. The concern should be about the people that are not reaching out for help, that are coming into work every day with a mask on, that are hugely at risk. And we're going to miss these people if we don't open the can of worms absolutely and i guess the really important thing is to understand what might be driving uh, that because that may be what comes out of uh, uh, of the mouth which is you know we're worried we're going to open a can of worms and how will we deal with that in a practical sense but it may also be driven by fear you know what if i end up in situations which i don't know how to handle what if I feel vulnerable and expose myself? Um, what if, what if this is just an area um, that that we don't have the skills and and knowledge and understanding to deal with yet? And that sounds like it's you know the next step of your conversation is it's got to happen. How do we help you? Yeah. And 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 that you know is is, is really uh, the important part. And I guess you know, going right back to um, where. In MHFA England, we want to train one in ten of the population to in mental health first aid um, skills, um, and uh, that by doing so, what we hope to engender is that absolute unshakable belief that you have to do something. And that doesn't mean you always know what you need to do. It doesn't always know how you need to do it. But that belief that we have to address this because not doing so harms people and worst case scenario it costs lives yes and exactly and um i noticed that there was some information well i stumbled across some information i think it was yesterday around your suicide rates in england raising or rising sorry by um just over 10 percent in the last 2000 it was 2018 so 2017 to 2018 yeah, I mean, suicide rates um, are, are too high, aren't they? And, and until we get to the point where, uh, you know, everybody feels able to access the help and support, they will always be too high. And we do have the first um, uh, minister with a brief for suicide prevention. I guess the challenge is really in, in taking that sort of commitment, which a ministerial post should 
demonstrate into concrete action and that requires resources it requires changes in attitude it requires uh, changes in in belief and skills to be able to to do it and 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 similarly uh, to you know the rest of the conversation we're having about mental health um, people don't want to talk about suicide people are very fearful about talking about it um, and and that has to change because as you say rates are increasing uh, rates too high period you know and 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 so that is is, is really important and we need to under, understand the the root causes um, of suicide we know uh, you know that might be about gender we know that trans um, young people are um, much more likely to have attempted suicides than their uh, peers we know that it disproportionately affects uh, certain groups and 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 that knowledge that data has to enable us to uh, really understand how to target um, our information you know it's, it's the highest killer for uh, young men under the age of 50 you know it, it, it's just not acceptable it doesn't have to be that way same for australia rates between 2016 2017 rose by just over nine percent um so we're at about 75 percent for males 25 percent for females and and there's so much more work going on now than there was five years ago ten years ago but you know, it's kind of, it's disheartening to think that, you know, something, you know, we're not getting it right. And, and, and that sort of, you know, it starts early, doesn't it? We've got to create a culture uh, where it is not only seen as, as right to, uh, to, to think about mental health, to think about well-being, but that at its heart, it's right to ask for help. You know, too often, uh, particularly for boys, we bully and, and rough them up to say, you know, be a man, uh, you know, and, and we encourage children who feel and express their feelings to, to just, you know, suck them in, take control, you know, in the British context, that stiff upper lip and all of those things do damage. Mm-hmm. And we also continue to allow groups of children, young people to be, to be hurt. We you know, allow prejudice and discrimination to continue. Um, and and that costs lives, and and that's something which luckily we're waking up to, but we've got an enormously long way to go. Yeah. So <clears throat> the minister's responsibility there. I'm just curious about this one. Um, is it just around suicide, or is it mental health and suicide? And is it just is that their only portfolio? So these are very very good questions. Sorry. So, <laughs> <laughs> no. so of course with any um, so their their remit is is suicide prevention. You then have um, uh, other ministers who have mental health as part of a public health portfolio um, or part of a disability um, portfolio, so sitting across different um, departments. And you know this your abs- your question I think gets the heart of it. Can we deal with these two things separately? And of course, no, we can't. You know, and, and I guess the, the whole point about everything is that having a suicide minister at the same time as having um, policies and programmes which will impact negatively on people um, won't work. So we've got to find ways for all policies and programmes um, you know, nationally and locally to have that um, that framing of them, which is, you know, will this positively enhance mental health and well-being, or will it impact negatively? And if it will impact negatively, um, 
should it happen at all and how do we mitigate perhaps unintended circumstances and consequences but consequences uh, all all the same and and we see that you know in lots and lots of policy um, uh, process that the the intention may be a good one mm-hmm. or it, or not depending on your political perspective um, but there will always be consequences which are a direct result of that and and we need uh, you know our, our um, senior leaders you know in both national and local government and civil society to have that understanding to be able to recognize uh, what um, the impact of different policies will be so that it is really about health creation and I think that's what you know what we want for workplaces it's what we want for for schools and youth clubs for everybody to be thinking how do we use these experiences to create well-being rather than um, uh, you know just have 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 that as something which people don't talk about yeah yeah that's really interesting so we've talked a couple of times it, there are, culture has come up and the changing the culture of society but also um our need to change the culture within workplaces to embrace the need to have parity for mental health and physical health we ran a seminar a couple of weeks ago where we had all sorts of people from all sorts of businesses came along. And one of the things that I said at the seminar is that when we talk about cultural shift around mental health, I'm not talking about a cultural revolution. I'd, I wish I was, but I'm a realist. I'm not talking about a cultural revolution. How, in your experience, how has successful businesses encouraged their staff um, and employees to be more open about their mental health and and create a more mentally well workplace how is that cultural shift coming about i think probably the most significant is through senior leaders uh, talking about their experience going right back to what you were saying earlier about storytelling people at the top being open about their experiences and being willing to discuss those and certainly when you look at some of the businesses which are taking this really seriously that uh, that is definitely a, a core part of of the equation i think we are talking about a revolution ultimately <laughs> yeah. Aren't we? yeah hopefully yeah that's 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 what we're <laughs> what we're looking for and i think yeah what where we've got to get is that senior leadership and strategic support and then you've also got you know, employees, and certainly in the UK, what we know is that younger people coming into work are saying, we want more than a wage packet. We want a socially responsible business that's got a clear purpose and is going to look out for staff. So you've got you know, the, 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 sort of the entry level, people coming into employment, and the senior leaders, you know, those in the, in the boardroom. What we've then got to do is make sure that it goes through like a stick of a rock. And that's from job design. You know, is the job set up in a way which people can realistically do it? Is it set up in a way um, which they've got all of the opportunities to be able to, to thrive within that? Um, have we got the support around it for when people do struggle? Do we um, do proactively commit to trying to make... Um, the workplace a good place to be from a, a food perspective what's in the canteen from a um, activities and benefits perspective how we promote um, workplace do we expect people to be at events where um, they're out late at night and then back early the next morning yeah there are all sorts of things and and those things have to be the translation of uh, a strategic objective to address mental health in the workplace and then a set of measurements and a set of um, of, of 
performance indicators which go right the way through and if we don't have that what you've got is 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 a is a hope which we hope will be translated and we you know i, I can't remember what these exactly is but we know that you know a hope without a plan is just a dream mm-hmm. you know a, a hope with a plan gives you a chance of, of getting there and 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 that's i think the the next steps and it's what people are are recognizing but actually we're not quite there yet and i think you know, middle managers, line managers have an absolutely critical role to play. Um, and, and, and that's coupled with that cultural change outside of organisations uh, as well. You know, I think it's really interesting to think about whether or not organisations help parents to prepare for when their children are leaving university or whether there is support and, and, and awareness that your performance and your ability to be at work might be impacted if you're going through divorce or separation or bereavement. You know, all of those sorts of um, literacy, you know, making us more literate about what it means to be human and bringing that into the way that we plan and deliver in the workplace is is part of that revolution that it sounds like we both want to be part of. Do, do you know, one of the slides I had up at the seminar was know your staff's milestones. Know, you need to know your staff as a baseline. You've got to find out who these people are when they're outside of the workplace. Who are they? You need, we need to know about people's families We need so that we can be aware from that baseline of when things might be be, be difficult for us. So if somebody's going through a divorce, if they're bereaved, if they've lost a loved one, if there's a relationship breakdown, if there's financial hardships, these are the kinds of things that happen to us. And if we don't know our staff at the baseline when, and we're not prepared to look out for those kind of milestone moments that happen to us when the wheels fall off, we're going to be crisis, you know, firefighting rather than being uh, proactive. I know it's a bit of a buzzword, but we need to be proactive. And the only way we can do that is to get to know our people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the key bit that people will often say to me is, uh, what do we look for? And ultimately, of course, you look for change. Yeah, that when, when things happen to us, we change our behaviours. And, you know, if you're a line manager who, who is able to connect with your staff well enough which all of us should be then it's when we should see that there's change and that's when we uh, should be um, uh, thinking about what needs to happen but also actively looking for change and you know I've learned an enormous amount since I've been um, in this role at MHFA England and the first question that we ask is is how are you and what are you doing to look after yourself and actually that question as part of your one-to-one it's not necessarily what the answer is one month it's what your answer is the next month and the next month. And that gives you that ability to, to really um, you know, understand whether things are shifting and things are changing. And I guess the, 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 the thing which I've really learned is that we have, to, uh, we have to just get better at understanding ourselves. We've got to get better at tuning into ourselves. We've got to get better at tuning into others and slowing down a bit enough to actually know what's going on. Yeah. And and if we can do that, then I think yeah we are um, we're, we're we'll head in the right direction. You know our brains are not designed to constantly uh, be you know um, yeah in 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 um, 
fired up then they're, they're not they're, yeah we're not designed in order to be um constantly on the with the on button and and so we've just got to find ways to to try and slow down tune out mm. turn off sometimes yeah i agree so what, what self-care practices do you have that you can share with us i do three four main things actually i swim uh, most days i run uh, uh begrudgingly i do run but i run begrudgingly <laughs> um i have a dog which i uh love uh so just before um uh talking to you she actually disappeared for a little bit on her walk which gave me a bit of a fright but came back wagging her tail very uh, very happily um and then i i have a horse and uh those things are um really uh, you know, key to uh, tuning out and making sure that um, we've got some time to do the things which we did. And I think that that's that for me. Self care people will talk about um, and give all sorts of things, and some of them are you know good things to do. And but for me, the the art is is how do you actually make sure your brain turns off and tunes out for a while rather than. Um, just you slow down it's how do you actually enable everything to go out and whether that's watching eastenders or home and away um <laughs> or whether it is is going out and 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 swimming or, or horse riding yeah we've got to find the thing which just enables us to have that downtime yeah very good tips very good tips so look i'm conscious of time but i could keep going for the future for mental health first aid england what i mean i don't want to kind of tap in too much to um, you know, ask you what your strategies are for the future. But um, where do you see Mental Health First Aid England going over the next few years? And, and where are your priorities? I think we've got you know, our fundamental um, you know, purpose, which is about improving the mental health of the nation. We want to ensure that you've got one in 10 of the population who are trained. And as I talked about earlier, with that unshakable belief, that we have to um, address mental health and promote uh, well-being and, and that mental health first aid uh, training is, is, a, is a fundamental um, part uh, of that. And we want to do two things. We're a social enterprise, which means that you know, uh, all of our profit and all of the resources which we can um, generate are reinvested back into the organisation. So we want to ensure that those who work uh, with young people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford training uh, get access to that training and we will provide that and we also want to uh, ensure that we contribute to transforming um, the workplace and when I say the workplace I mean anywhere that people go to work because as adults we spend at least a third of our working lives um, in uh, at work and so you know, it feels to me as though the work employers big or little their single most important corporate social responsibility has to be improving mental health and well-being because that has a, a big impact on the health and happiness and mental literacy of wider society so for us it's really about using that that opportunity to uh, help employers to uh, to do the right thing for their employees so they thrive at work but so that it has that big impact outside of, of work. Um, and then um, anything that we can do to really ensure that those who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford training are able to access it. And, and that feels like a really important principle to us as a, as a social enterprise. You know, it, it, it's what means that um, we can all stand and say we're doing 
um, everything that we can as um, businesses who work with us and also uh, as a business ourselves to ensure that nobody's left behind because this is about everybody. So that, that is, that's really critical. And I guess for me on a personal level, um, I want to make sure that we're the best employer that we can be, that we are um, you know, right the way through our supply chain, that we will demonstrate that you can be successful as an organization, that you can um, you know, be a high performing organization and look through the prism of well-being and mental health in everything that you do. And I, you know, I'd like to try um, some slightly quirky um, things uh, you know, as part of that. We know that um, laughter, for example, is a really uh, good uh, release. So, you know, it's um, World Laughter Day um, uh, coming up or will have been, I'm sure, by the time that the podcast is, is, is played. Um, but how much in the workplace do we spend time trying to help people to laugh? You know, what, are the, what can we do in order to try and, try and do that? How do we help people to bring their best selves both to their role but also contributing more widely to the organisation? I, I don't know what that looks like yet, but it's certainly something which I'll be talking to, to staff and to others about so that we can then use that to, to help others, both you know, those that we work with directly but also in a wider community because it's also important to me that whilst we are MHFA England um, we're part of a global community you know, we're, we're inherently connected into um, Australia through you know, MHFA Australia and the global community that we're part of so I want us to learn and to really share what we learn um, as part of, of that community so that we can all keep walking side by side because we do need that revolution yeah, and that revolution may not it may not look like us all marching with flags but if we stand side by side and can learn from each other and keep on insisting that this is something that you know, cannot be a priority for a year or for three years this is a lifetime priority and we've got to shift the dial so yeah that's that's really where where i sit and 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 i know that there's so much fantastic work happening around the world so i'd like to be part of that conversation as well have you ever thought of going into politics at all? I'd vote for you. Thanks very much, but I, I, I haven't. <laughs> I, partly because I think uh, um, for me it would be too, um, it would be too stressful. Actually, that idea <laughs> of of always being on, uh, you know, and and and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and always being accountable, and somebody, um, you know, for every decision you make, you know, a, a group of people having. A whole range of, of views about that. I feel like the responsibility would be too much, I think. Yeah, too great. Too great. Yeah, especially in climate at the moment. <laughs> well, Simon, it really has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. If anybody wants to find out more about the Where's Your Head At campaign, what's the, um, where's the best website for people to go to? So it's where'syourheadat.org. Awesome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. No worries. And the other thing, I guess, is um, we may be based in England, but our Instagram account, um, MHFA England, and our Twitter account, same handle, MHFA England, um, it's got lots around self-care on it. So if people want to follow those, then um, they, they, they travel uh, across the world. And uh, yeah, we'd love, to, we'd love to continue the conversation. Yeah, excellent. We we follow you. We look at all, we, your content all the time. As I said at the at the start of the podcast, it's really excellent work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tina. Have a good day. 
If you enjoyed this podcast and you would like us to appear in your feed, please hit the subscribe button and you're also welcome to leave us a review. For more information, visit careerdevelopmentcentre.com.au.